You're listening to The Process with Peter Martin, presented by Open Studio. Today's episode of The Process was recorded live on stage at Jazz at the Bistro in St. Louis, USA. Kurt and Branford, thank you guys so much for being here um, on the stage. You were just here a few hours ago, just lighting it up on your first night here at the uh, at the Bistro, and I'm so interested. I mean, I've been knowing both of you for a while, and you're two of my favorite musicians and people, and um, I'm so interested in this co- collaboration that you guys have uh, that just started, I guess, what, about a year and a half ago, two years, and... Um, you know, I got a chance to hear you guys a couple times last year in some uh, far-flung locations. Um, <laughs> I think it was Bulgaria, it was Ukraine and Bulgaria. So now you've come, you know, to St. Louis, a few few miles from my house. So I'm really excited about that. Um, but it's such a uh, it's such a unique thing to have musicians of your guys' caliber come together in something that could be seen maybe as a little bit unexpected. And have it be so killing. So I would love to sort of get into, you know, the genesis of this project and how you guys met. I know you've kind of known each other from being on the road, but really, like, when when the first time you kind of heard each other and how this project came about and how the material was. You know, I'm asking like 30 questions already. I'm just throwing it out there to see when your eyes light up. But um, it's, uh, yeah, thank you for being here. And so maybe start with you, Kurt. What is your experience with you know hearing Branford's music and then how did this come about for you uh well you know obviously Branford's been recording for a couple of decades now and uh I mean he's been uh, he's been a hero uh to me and to everybody who loves the saxophones um so he's he was no stranger through his work uh and we would bump into each other at uh various uh uh, festivals in the summertime um, and I was always it's like wow Branford because he would always be very generous and gracious when he would see me and I was surprised that uh, he said wow he knows who I am at all hmm. well that's just you know that's just that's the way I play it <laughs> and he was always uh very wonderful, and he and he would say, "Man, we were ma- I'm making a record with you," and I would say, "Okay, anytime, any week, any studio, any band, anytime." And then he actually gave me a shout, and he said, "The time is now," and so I cleared uh, my schedule so I could be there for it, and um, we took it from there. There's a boat that's leaving soon for New York. Come with me. That's where you belong, sister. You and me can live the high life into yours. Come with me. There you can't go wrong, sister. I'll buy you the swellest mansion way up Fifth Avenue. And tomorrow we'll go strutting, we'll go strutting, and there'll be nothing too good for you. I'll dress you in silk and satin in the latest Paris style. And I'll lose, you'll be forgetting, you'll be forgetting, and there'll be nothing for you but smiles. There's some for that sleeping suit. So was that, was your concept, Branford, then in terms of bringing Kurt in? Because obviously he's coming in with your band and you have, you know, one of the longest established and still working jazz bands if that still exists and it does today you know with your own sound and your own vision and um you know what was the concept for kurt to come in as you know as a special guest or as an integral part of the group or was it kind of just to see where it would go organically or did you have a vision on that at the time with the group we worked you know eric's been in the band since 96 and Joey came in in 98, and Justin came in in 2009 or 10, something like that. But just as an overall philosophy, we really worked hard to not become one-dimensional. When I first got to New York, they were, you know, like the whole talk. I was actually just talking about this with some guys from the St. Louis Symphony. Uh, They were playing Beethoven 7, and one of the violinists said, it's amazing 
how complex this music is, and it's even more complex when you just play what's written. Because so many times over the years, conductors have come in and inserted themselves into the music, and what David Robertson is really great at doing is stripping away all of the stuff that's not relative to Beethoven, and just playing the straight thing. And I said, and we, then I said, well, it's the same thing in jazz. Because in jazz, there's always this obsession with, as they like to say, finding your own voice, as though it's like hiding in a bush somewhere. And everyone actually has their own voice. You've sounded like you since you started playing an instrument. It's just you can either have an informed voice, an ill-informed voice, or a very informed voice. But the obsession is always about taking other people's music and distorting it to fit whatever your vision is. And because I grew up playing in an R&B cover band that did talent shows, it was our job to play other people's music as authentically as possible. And it was successful for a bunch of 15-year-old kids. So when I got to New York, that was my idea, was that we're going to learn how to play a lot of different styles and we're going to play it with authenticity. So whatever situation we're in, we can adapt to that situation and not force everybody else to do the one thing that it is that we do. And, of course, the, the complaint is that the music lacks cohesion and lacks consistency because they are so accustomed to people doing one or two things very well and then beating everybody over the head with it that that became the norm. So when Kurt joined the group, it really wasn't about... I just knew it wasn't going to be singer in band. I wasn't. We weren't having that. And I knew that the band... That the way we played when we played, you know, as a quartet, instrumentally, that wasn't the only way that the group could play, and that we could play and support Kurt, because when you have a singer, the singer's the front man or woman, and that's the end of the conversation. And if the people in the band are trying to asking that question, that like doomed relationships always doomed when one person goes, "Well, where am I in all this?" And as soon as that question is asked, I mean, it's pretty much. Done, and there are musicians who do it all the time. Well, how can I find myself in this? I'm like, you don't know who you are, really. <laughs> so when Kurt came in, it was just okay. Now we're doing this, and the intention was always for it to be a quintet, not to be singer and band. Or we're going to do one song where Kurt is featured, and then we're going to go and play all of this stuff that we used to do. It's like the whole idea of a collaboration, to me, is that. Nobody gets to do what it is that they do. The modern kind of interpretation of collaboration is, you know, I know what you do, you know what I do. Let's get a head start and run real fast and collide into one another and whatever spills out over the side is the collaboration. But uh, for me, it's just, we're going to do something else now. It's going to be a completely different thing. And if, if, if people are surprised... It is because they had an expectation. Like they're like, well, how are those two things going to work? Because we know what Kurt does, and then we know what Branford's group does. It never occurred to them that we weren't going to do either one of those things. So what have I to give her? Stars shine, waves whisper the constellation. Conversations One island To another I think, I mean, you just said, you know, you said when Kurt joined the band, and, um, you know, when I first heard you guys play together, that's exactly what it was, but when I first heard about the concept, you know, special guest, I was like, I was like, maybe Branford's going to do his thing with his group, and then it's going to be like, now we'd like to call up Kurt Elling, we're going to do some of his arrangements, and I was like, that doesn't really seem like Branford's style, or Kurt's, 
So, I mean, it really makes perfect sense. I think people's expectations probably coming in were a little bit differently, but, you know, it seems like it works so well. And I think also because, and maybe you could speak to this some, Kurt, I always see Branford's group as, you know, the individuals that are there, but he's always allowed so much input to the, you know, the lineage of what the, what the Branford Marsalis Quartet has become that even people that aren't there still kind of have this influence over it. So it's become its own thing. And, you know, Branford's had that confidence to let people have a lot of influence in, in helping to shape that. So, I mean, how was that for you coming into sort of this, this uber, uh, you know, established band and joining the band, like Branford said? Uh, well, it called upon a number of things that I had had to learn very early. Um, I never, in kind of echoing the way Branford talked about things, I never, uh, I shouldn't say I never, I always wanted to be um, doing my best to reach up to the level of the musicians I was playing with. And early on that meant cats who were much, much older than me uh, guys from Chicago who were in their 70s and 80s, uh, primarily tenor saxophone players. I seemed to gravitate that way. Uh, so it was Vaughn Freeman and Eddie Johnson, who was a member of the Louis Jordan Band back in the day, um, and a guy who's a great teacher down at University of New Orleans now, um, Ed Peterson. And in their own ways, each of those men represented um, striking evidence of individuality and of their way of inhabiting and forwarding the jazz tradition. And, in, and each in their own way had every right and every ability to be the, the sound the leader of the band, the sound, the and any singer, they you know it would be a matter of welcoming the singer in, um, and so I always wanted to play as as to apprehend as much as I could uh, of the aesthetic that they were using as band leaders that they had in their minds, and Ed, in the case of Ed Peterson, the stuff was just it was always new uh, compositions stuff I had to work really hard on to grab, um, stuff that I would occasionally write lyrics for, stuff where I'd have to say, wow, I have no idea what I'm going to do on this thing, but he's, he wants me to do this tune. What if I read a thing? Or what if I sang some lyrics over this? Or wh what can I contribute that's, that may not be comfortable for me, but that's the best thing I could give to that idea? in the same way that with Von Freeman, the best thing I could give was straight up blowing. And the best thing I could give to Eddie Johnson was a beautiful way as much as I could offer it with a ballad in a kind of Ben Webster kind of a style. If I was gonna sing with Ben Webster, how would I sing? So a little bit of chameleon, but really more, it was just I was being stretched in a bunch of different directions. And the uniform mm, energy was for me to give the best thing that I could to my friend and mentor's uh, idea and to the band. So I had to be as ready as I could be, and sometimes I wasn't ready, and that was a thing too. And Vaughn would encourage me anyway, like, yeah, man, go for that. So there's a lot of things. There's a lot of things from my earliest times before I could really have a band and before I even had an established book of music and charts I could call on that I had to be able to do to be ready to be a band leader. And a lot of that had to do with fitting in. So Branford calls me. He's got an established aesthetic. He has some tunes. He wants to hear what tunes I want to do. We talk about them. And we both try to arrive at the best possible outcome for the music because I have some flexibility in what I can do. And Branford and, and these cats have... an remarkable flexibility in what they do, then, as Branford says, we can come to a place where we're playing stuff that neither one of us would otherwise be playing on a given night. And that's, that's real collaboration. Right. Absolutely. Now, how did you navigate, um, as you guys were putting the music together, recording, um, 
Branford's, what I've always known is his aversion, can we call it an aversion to rehearsal? <laughs> was that a <laughs> well I mean it's something we've talked about over and an aversion to group rehearsal yeah. to group rehearsal it's not, yeah it's not an aversion to rehearsal per se right well it's definitely not an aversion to practicing I know no, that it's not an aversion <laughs> it's just as I as I got older as I you know thinking about jazz I was like wait a minute man. this stuff is really simple it's like the hardest part about learning how to play jazz is learning how to play it. And once you learn how to play it, it's not really hard because there's no such thing as a jazz standard. They don't exist. Those were pop tunes that were designed to sell, which meant that they were written with the same level of simplicity that songs are written now. I mean, harmonically, they were more complex, but the melodies were just as melodic and catchy and all of those things. And when I started listening to singers sing those songs. When I started listening to Sinatra sing songs and I started listening to, uh, um, what's her name, Doris Day and Nat Cole, people who sang the melody straight, and I started singing along with the songs. They were no different than the pop songs I learned when I was a kid. And you could hear where the direction was going. They're all very predictable songs. So what exactly are we rehearsing? So guys would say, oh yeah, we're going to do a, a group of, you know, we're going to play standards, as they're called. And then you have a rehearsal and the rehearsal is basically two hours or more long. And what the rehearsal essentially is comprised of is you know, the 45 seconds it takes to play the melody with no real conscious effort to actually play the melody. And it's just a jam session where guys are soloing. And after a while, I'm like, aren't we rehearsing for the gig? Why are we playing the gig right now? So that just became, by my late 20s, I said, you want to do a gig? I said, yeah, I'm not rehearsing. Because all you do is play solos at the rehearsal. So give me the list of songs, or don't give me the list of songs. I know most of them. We'll figure it out. And when you have original songs, original songs should be simple if you don't have a band. If you have a band, make them as hard as you want. Because when you look at the Blue Note catalog, I mean, most of the records that are killer records, they're playing rhythm changes, variation on rhythm changes, blues, standards, things everybody knows, and they're really glorious records because everybody's having a good time. And then Wayne Shorter shows up with all these hard songs, brings them in, and the band is literally falling apart like in a Mel Brooks movie behind him. <laughs> and when I'm listening to it, I'm saying, well, what's the lesson here? The lesson here is don't bring this kind of stuff in unless you have a band. Because then the musicians on the, on the session are now playing defense instead of playing offense. And the sound of music when musicians are playing not to mess up is totally different when they're just playing. And most audience members have not gone to music school. They don't know all these intricacies, and they really want to like it. That's why they're there. Music audiences tend to have more fun when the musicians are having more fun. And you go to gigs, and guys are like, they're standing on stage like, well, they're counting music, looking, and they're up there, and they're thinking about the changes, and I said, this is all stupid. So one of the reasons that I avoided having rehearsals is that in those situations, guys were kind of forced to play simpler music if they wanted me to play the gig, because I wasn't interested in spending you know, three days rehearsing bad music to be played in front of an audience for six nights and then never played again and emphasis on bad music, really bad. So that's so when, when we got the band, the band started happening, I'm like, well, what do we need to rehearse? And it wasn't just me. Kenny Kirkland had an aversion to rehearsal. Tane, they didn't want to rehearse. And I'm like, great, I don't either. That's great. So when we bring in new songs, we play them at a, like a mini sound check before the gig, and then we mess them up for two weeks, which was inevitable anyway, because this, the, that's how you learn songs. You mess them up. And then eventually you hear it, and then then you can play it. And depending on the difficulty of the song, it would take two days. Uh, Tane wrote this song, Vaudeville. It took six weeks just to hear it. And I could have found you know, five or six scales that worked and played those six scales every time and then not worried about it. Or I can just mess this song up and try to find things, and then when my brain finally grabs it, then I can play whatever I want. So I just went that route. So, yeah, that, that's why the whole aversion of rehearsal thing, because, I mean, Kurt is great. 
It's like, and I tell people when they ask me about that, I say, jazz is simple. Either you can play it or you can't. And if you can't, I, don't, I can't use you. And Kurt could do it. And I knew it. I have the records. I heard him. He has a jazz vocabulary. He sings in tune. We're good. We don't need to rehearse. Right. Kurt wasn't pleased about that when, when I told him <laughs> we weren't going to do it. But when we started doing the gigs, he was like, oh, okay. It's going to be all right. Right. But, I mean, I think that that process, like what you were saying about with the, you know, earlier your earlier quartets with Tane and Kenny Kirkland, um, Bob Hurst, like that process of rehearsing on the gig maybe and working out the material and stuff. And, I mean, I heard a lot of that over the years at different times. And that, I mean, is such a history in jazz of that being part of the performance process that maybe we've gotten a little bit away from that audiences don't even realize because maybe you have a generation or, or a lot of folks that don't even get to experience that kind of that that immediacy but seeing something being developed like that i mean that's some of the most thrilling stuff when you have musicians on a level and a willingness and an openness to do that the personalities are different everybody's afraid to fail right and when you were around those old guys the dinosaurs they weren't afraid to fail <laughs> the di- they right. failed on a regular night and then they go get a drink and, right right and, and they they failed with so much confidence that everybody said man that was killing Right, right. <laughs> and I'm listening to it. So, okay, it's kind of a quandary. Everybody's loving it. That kind of sucked. Maybe it's me. I mean, when I'm 22, I'm like, maybe it was me. That's not. By the time I was 26, I'm like, oh, I get it. Yeah, this totally was wrong and sucked. But they played, they had such an elan when they did it. Yeah. Because most people hear with their eyes. That's why they keep saying, I can't wait to see you tonight. Right. <laughs> Which is okay. Not mad about it. I'm just saying. It's like saying, like, this is a knife and that's a fork. Most right. people. So when they see it and they see confidence, they say, I'm not sure, if it, I'm not sure what that was, but I liked it. It's, right. really, it's really, really good. And now you have guys on stage, and they're so afraid to make mistakes right. that they over-rehearse. So then everything that they play is scripted. There's no spontaneity. Right. So I'm, like, I'm just going to go up there and be spontaneous and mess up. And if I mess up, I'm going to, because my, my teacher used to say, you always make a face when you mess up. You shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, why not? He says, well, it, it's just you shouldn't. People, you know, people don't need us, but people like it when you make mistakes. It makes you seem human. Mm-hmm. People kind of, I've, I've done this a lot. People go like, man, I was really cool when you made that mistake. And, you know, no, no, you shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm kind of going to do that. Yeah, I think, yeah. Thank you, Dr. Bro, but I think I'm going to be doing that. <laughs> right. And it could be any setting. If I'm playing a classical piece and I mess up, I go, ah, right in the middle of the piece. Right. And people say, well, that was really cool. Most people would just try to shake it off. I'm like, man, you know, real time. I'm human. I'm going to mess up. And I'm going to own it. Imagine that. This episode of The Process is brought to you by Jazz St. Louis. For a full concert calendar or to check out some of Jazz St. Louis's education programs, go to jazzstl.org. So you guys did, when you did the record, the collaboration, or Kurt, you joining the band, as he said, um, you did some gigs at Snug Harbor. You did like three or four nights, so an extended run, especially for Snug Harbor. Was, is that what kind of ended up happening? Was that the sort of de facto rehearsal for the recording? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Um, we walked in and we put the charts down on the music stand and started playing them and had a good time and laughed and definitely made a mess of that Portuguese thing for a while until I locked that in. Um, But man, did we have a good time laughing our way through all that stuff. And I think the audience, you know, that is probably a reason why, other than availability, fans back in the day would come back night after night to to hear a band because it was always developing. I mean, because it, be, it would be developing every night at a, such a rapid rate. You were talking about when Wayne would bring tunes in. I mean, can you imagine the first night when he would bring something in and they'd be playing it at the Blackhawk and they're, wow, that was, and then the next night, wow, and then the next night, wow, revelation after revelation. Um, and so that's, it's fun and thrilling and dangerous for whoever's playing, and it's fun and dangerous and thrilling for whoever's listening. But that was that was basically it. We just played the four nights, and then 
walked into the uh, the uh, Marcellus Center down in, uh, around the corner from the place, and we were all in the same room, all on a stage in a ring. You know, if you if you actually buy the CD, you can see the way the way the setup was, and they had baffling in between us, so that they could fix some things. But it was all in real time, and we're all looking at each other, trying to do it. It's real jazz stuff. Right, right. Mm. Absolutely. Imagine that. (laughs) (laughs) So I wanted to ask you both, um, you know, something I heard last night, because I was trying to figure out, um, you know, when something, you know, like you joining the band, you guys collaborating on this, you both being tenors, as it were, and, you know, playing, playing in this potentially you know, in this region that there could be so much, you know, it's like guitar and piano or something. It can be so great, but there's a 90% chance that there can be duplication of services and things. Um, but one thing I was noticing, you both have this, like, really acute sense of vibrato and when to use it, when not to use it. And you both will go stretches on a note without any vibrato. I mean, I play piano, so... I go stretches of my whole life not using vibrato, you know. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, I really appreciate what that, you know, because we don't even have that decision to make. But I'm just wondering, did you guys ever think about that or have you noticed that in each other's playing? Because you have some of the best use of non-vibrato. You know, it's kind of like the whole Mozart thing of, like, choose when not to play a note. You know, it's so obviously yeah, everyone can figure that out, but nobody figured it out. Um, but vibrato, which there's so many different ways to do it for vocalists and for tenor. I mean, these two instruments and tenor being probably the closest to the voice, except for maybe the cello or something, you know. But is that something you guys have ever talked about or thought about? Yeah, that's what I figure. Okay. That was a great question. Thanks. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, played with, I, I, did, I played with singers a long time. I mean, when I was 14 years old, I played with a singer. If you ever saw that Bird movie, when the singer turned around and cursed him out for playing too much... I said, I remember that. That happened to me in 1974. And uh, I went home and told my dad about it. I was mad. And he started laughing. Then I got madder. He said, hey, man, you sing. You want to work with a singer. The singer is at the top, and you're underneath that. And if you don't like that, don't work with singers. If you're going to work with singers, learn how to work with singers. So after a while, without actually thinking about it, uh, I learned how to match the singer. And it's just the simple things. Like if you have two people, if I'm playing a harmony part to Kurt and Kurt is using vibrato, it feels like I'm using it even when I'm not. So I might as well not because if I do, we won't have the same vibrato and there'll be a clash. It works great the more of you, you know, it's like in an orchestra. It's like vibrato, when you have 60 people playing, it kind of becomes its own different thing. But when it's only a string quartet, vibrato is really crucial. You have to pick the spots when to use it and when not because it, those varying wavelengths can crash. But uh, I just, I'm so conditioned. I mean, playing with Sting for four years, I'm conditioned with, I started doing that thing with Sting where when he would sing a melody a certain way, I would find a note that harmonized with the melody and hold that note for whatever the duration that he held the note, which is the thing that I'm doing with Kurt, as opposed to always looking at every uh, whole note or every space as an opportunity to play one of my dynamic fast riffs or licks. I'm really not thinking in those ways. Like you know, like that early question, like where, how do I find myself in all of this? Well, I can be a lot of things. So, so when I'm Playing with Kurt, I play when he, generally speaking, I play notes when he's not singing in the little spaces. Mm. And when I'm playing while he's singing, I'm playing what he's singing and harmonizing with that, as opposed to trying to play over him. She wore blue So um, one other thing I was thinking about, you guys are both from, um, you know, really strong music cities. And Kurt, you're from Chicago. And Bradford, you're from New Orleans. 
and you know with rich traditions and and I would imagine have really shaped who you are as musicians but could you just sort of speak on what you know kind of going through this this journey now not only how of course it influenced you but like what does it bring to you later when you've been gone for years I know you haven't been gone that long from Chicago um, but you've been out of New Orleans for a, for a, for a long time still stay connected but like how does that start to change over time when you're not like you know, just remembering the stuff that you learn coming up and things as you go through this musical journey? Uh, I think a lot of it is unconscious. It's just who, I mean, it just feels like me trying to play as well as I can and trying to approach a given evening with all the resources that were given to me and that I tried to get a hold of. Um, sometimes I'll consciously hear Vaughn in the back of my mind giving me encouragement or not criticism because he wasn't like that. But, um, and sometimes I'll, you know, when I shout something out, it'll remind me of some stuff that Vaughn used to say. And I know it's great to have stories. Um, but on a given night, I'm just trying to play as well as I can. And, you know, you talk about this, stuff with the vibrato um sometimes the music calls for it and sometimes it doesn't and uh there's a lot of technique there's a lot of things that being on the stand the reason it feels so good is because you're uh, if you're doing it right then you're fully present and you're not thinking about anything else and you're listening as hard as you can and you're focused on, I mean, focused on singing in tune. Uh, there, are places on, there are places on songs every single night where I, I don't get, where I try to tighten or make more acute my awareness of singing in pitch because I know that there are some parts where it's like, well, that never sounds quite right to me or it, I never quite get that as well as I want. And I, tonight I really want to, so I'll, so because you focused so acutely on the moment that others, whatever falls away, which is why we can laugh in the middle of all this that's happening in the world right now, and we can try to spread that around a little bit because we hope people in the seats get to forget everything out in the world as well for 90 minutes a night. Um, and certainly, again, going back to the question of when, when Branford and I are playing uh, melody and harmony at the same time, I mean, that's, that really, those really feel like duets to me. And we're both listening as hard as we can, and we're both going with the music, and Branford is supporting how long I can take it, and I, I can feel his eyes watching, and I can sense that Joey's over here watching, and everybody's, we're all, they're all supporting me, and I'm trying to sing as well as I can, and then when Branford and Joey go off on a thing, if there's something I can contribute, and it's a it's a freer area, then I'll contribute it. And I'll, I'll try not to step on whatever they're doing, but contribute something. But if I'm done, then, I'll, then I'm done. I don't have to make more things happen to be there. I'm, I'm happy to stand over there, man, and just be as awestruck as everybody else. Um, but, you know, Vaughn's example to me was really strong because it's a lot the same thing that Branford was talking about early on, the... Like, make mistakes. Get out, you know, play, play it louder if, if you're going to do that. If you're really going to do it, then, you know, to, to, to just try to find the sweet spot on a given pass. Um, and maybe that sweet spot means you've got to listen more and play fewer notes or try to do, you know, whatever, to go down all that road. But, but to have the freedom and the feeling in the music... A, that you're going to be supported by the rest of the band, which I get invariably and wholeheartedly. Um, and to be, I don't know, if forgiven is the right word, but supported, certainly supported, as I try to find what I can do on a given night. And sometimes, man, they play these tempos that are a lot faster than I would call. <sighs> okay, well, that's what it is then. Um, 
That's, you know, but that, to me, that feels like, again, the stuff that I had early on in my Chicago career was like, wow, I better figure something out on this right quick right. Um, and jump in. Well, on, I mean, on the Gershwin, the first tune in the second set last night, um, I, I could tell they started a little faster maybe than, definitely than on the recording, and maybe faster than, than you normally The first would. set they played it at, right at that nice, which is fine. Yeah. It's great. And the second set they played it more like they usually do. Okay. But <laughs> what I noticed you did, like you didn't, you didn't do what many singers do, which is kind of turn around and, you know, no. you know. And then um, you also... I, that, that, first of all, that would not work. <laughs> you didn't seem like you were going to do it anyway, though. But, but, but you also, like, you changed... You, you didn't try to force... Like, you didn't force the way you would sing it, on, you know, at that other tempo. You changed the phrasing. You changed, like, the timing of the melody in real time in a way that is like... I mean, we're talking about you know, arrangements and seeing things happen that's really thrilling for somebody to hear, would hear you guys night to night to be like, wow, I mean, the arrangement's still there, the way you're doing it, you're hitting your notes or whatever, but it, it, it is changing subtly in a way that, that, that makes it worthwhile. That's right. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's great. So I, I wanted to ask you, Kurt, you, you mentioned like this, this thing of like really focusing, um, you know, on, on what to contribute, on the intonation, on all these things, and, and is that... In, in being in Branford's band, playing with his band, is that different than when you're with your own band? Is it easier to do that here when you don't have to worry about it's, it, this is my group, I'm a member of the band, I can make my contribution? Because, I mean, you, I'm, I know you haven't spent nearly as much time as being in someone's band as you have been as a band leader over the past 10 to 15 years. Is it easier? I, I mean, I'm just, not, think, just to think about your musical contribution. Yeah, technique or whatever. No, yeah. I don't... I'm not so sure about that, whether it's, I mean, the, certain things would be easier in my band because I would call the tempo on whatever it is. <laughs> um, but there's not a night that goes by when I'm not hi, kind of hyper aware or hyper aware that every night I'm equally aware mm. of the need for good technique and try to find a new thing and yeah um, I can't think of of any real specifics other than you know I mean now that we're now that we're we're doing this material it's then I want to play this material as well as I can and I want to listen to these musicians as well as I can and and not just um not get ahead of myself or lose lose the thread of the thought or anything like that that would make it so that I'm not fully integrated. Right. Got it. Got it. Thank you. So, uh, Branford, about New Orleans, do you have any any uh, kind of back to my original question just about, you know, now at this, at this point in your life, being gone for so long, um, you know, how that informs your music and, and your outlook? I think the greatest thing that ever happened to me there was when I was 10 years old and I was playing uh, clarinet in youth orchestra with Mr. Demborian. And he was always looking at me saying, your, your reading is horrible. You have to become a better reader. I said, okay, you got to be a better reader. And I tried. And, and we would do uh, orchestral rehearsals from 10 a.m. to 12. And then at 1 o'clock, uh, Danny Barker, who was this old uh, guitar player and banjo player with Louis Armstrong's band in the 30s and the 40s, moved back to New Orleans, left New York, moved back, started a youth jazz band. And the first day we went there was sponsored by the Fair, Fairview Baptist Church. So it was the Fairview Baptist Church brass band or jazz band. And the trumpet player who's still playing in New Orleans, his name is Greg Stafford. Greg Stafford, who was at the time, I was 10, so he's probably 14, 15. He called one of the songs, and I turned to him and said, okay, what key is that song in? And he said, key. And he held down two valves and said, this key right here, bruh. And he started playing, and I was like, okay, so much for reading. I got to hear. So every Saturday for two years, I would read in the orchestra, and then I would go to the Fairview and just play by ear. And that kind of set me on a really cool path. Of, of musical versatility, and one of the one of the 
it's very difficult for young musicians who learn how to read at an early age to hear music because they've not been forced to hear it. So you play the notes that are on the page and you don't pay attention to how they sound or you play pianissimo because the page says pianissimo, not because you're hearing pianissimo. But as I got older uh, and started, I was always listening to music. As I listened to more and more music and I play music, I could play and actually read the notes and hear what was going on at the same time. And I played with funk bands, I played with bluegrass bands, with R&B bands, with Zydeco bands, youth orchestras, jazz bands, marching bands, and all of that stuff is always with me wherever I go. So the first time I played with the Grateful Dead in 1989, they were shocked because it didn't sound like a jazz guy, just bogarting jazz stuff on top of their song. And they, man, where'd you learn how to do that in New Orleans? And then I played uh, I Put a Spell on You, which is this old Screaming Jay Hawkins song with uh, Elton John and Steve Cropper. And there's a little eight-bar sax solo, and I played the sax solo, and Steve Cropper turns and said, damn, son, where you learn how to play that? I said, I'm from New Orleans. He says, oh, yeah, okay, it figures. And... So for me, it's just all these sounds that I grew up with, they don't leave. Like, I hadn't played anything commercially. Like, you know, I, I, I left New Orleans in 1979, and that was the end of my R&B slash rock and roll career. And then when I played again with Sting in 85, I mean, it was still there waiting for me. I started doing the gigs. I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember how to do this. And it's, it's great to be in these settings where you keep switching these musical styles, but it's all the same because... I mean, the great thing about Western music is that Jimi Hendrix and Wolfgang Mozart have played the same 12 notes, I mean 12 notes for 800 years. So clearly, it's not the notes, it's the sound. And because I've been dealing with sound as long as I had, that was always an easier transition for me than a musician who needs some sort of mathematical paradigm to try to understand a different style of music than the music that they play. Right. And I mean, I'm, I'm just piecing this together. I realize what a profound impact that kind of philosophy, you know, for you coming out of New Orleans and that situation, that kind of, you know, outlook and just openness within the music at, at that time. Because I met you in 1985. You were playing just down the street here at Powell Hall with Winton and Kenny Kirkland. And, 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 um, I remember that day. Yeah. And then, like, you know, six months later, you were back at the Muni with Sting. And, you know, I think we, um, there was a trumpet player, Wayne Dumaine, who was in high school. I think I was still in mi middle school or whatever. And he's like, yeah, we're going to go over and see um, Kenny Kirkland and, and Branford Marsalis at the hotel. You know, they're playing with Sting. I was like, wow. And we went over and you were so gracious. And, you know, we talked about music. But, I mean, mainly just seeing you in those two situations that close to, you know, you know doing a, a big pop gig on stage at the Muni. You know, just you know, playing the hardcore jazz stuff that I was just getting into. I mean, I I had heard Kenny Kirkland on record, and that like already had changed my life. And then I kind of vaguely knew who the rest of you were, but seeing that that live and then getting thrust into that world and to see, you know, just the tapestry of what that could be was was kind of I mean, the beginning of me maybe wanting to go to New Orleans, which I ended up doing, and just sort of be a part of something that that is that open and that exciting and everything. So that was cool. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so um, thank you guys so much. the The new record is Upward Spiral, and this is on Marsa. Is this on Marsalis Music on your label? I, I don't know. I think it's on OK Records. OK. Are you okay with that? PH. I'm okay. Okay. With that. <laughs> Put it up. But you still have the label, right? You're like the last per Like Sony's gone out of business. Blue Notes. Well, everything. Oh, you mean no? They didn't go out. Sony's very much alive. Oh, they they are, just okay. killed their jazz department. Okay, there you go. You know, Blue Note is struggling. Warner Brothers killed their jazz department, but it's the same. I mean, it's cyclical. Right. Like they killed their jazz departments in the '60s. Right. They came back in the '80s. They lasted till the aughts, and then they got rid of them. It'll, it'll be back at some point. Right. It just keeps wherever. If they think they can make a buck, they'll go with it. Right. But I mean, you've been doing your own label for a while, which is really like I always thought of you know Betty Carter. 
you know, it's kind of being one of the first, you know, hardcore jazz musicians right. to say, I'm going to do, I mean, at a time when that couldn't have been the easiest thing. Right. Um, but you've really spent a lot of time and, and, and energy doing that and developing that and for years now. So. Yeah, it kind of runs itself. I Thank God, I don't really, I try to, you get caught up in that and then you, you the next thing you know, you're not playing music. Right, right. So, um, yeah, the new record is, is amazing. I'd encourage everybody to go out and check it out. It's really one of these um, these records that, you know, that it seems like there used to be, you know, when we were coming up, it was like, man, this record's coming out on this date, and you go to the record store, and it would be a project, and it would really be something, and now it's just a bunch of different things, but I think this is really a record that is something that people can sink their teeth into and then come and hear you guys live. Are you guys touring throughout the rest of the year? Most of it. Cool. Half of it, something. Hey, that works. that works. So, thank you guys so much. Thanks, Kurt. Thank you, Brantford. Brantford Marsalis, Kurt Ellen. Thank you guys so much. My name is Peter Martin. That is why I pass it on to you because it works so well for me and helps me get away from strife. I hope you listen carefully. They say the truth will set you free, and that's the way you want to be. Because, brother, this is your life. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Process. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider leaving a rating or review for us. For more information, go to openstudionetwork.com, and we'll see you next time at The Process. Mm -hmm.